you can hide things in vocabulary. My name is Matthew Kroll. And do you have a tale to swap with me? My name is Shahir Dowd. And this is the only podcast about movies, specifically the film, very, very long title that I love when this happens, The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford. Why? Why in the world would we be doing a 2007 movie in this, the year 2020? Listen, I don't know, but I'll tell you one thing. The title is too long for us to do it alone. That is true. And in fact, the reason we're doing this specific movie is because I am very excited to have a specific guest on the episode, Blake Howard, who is the writer, film critic, podcast host, and the producer of the absolutely terrific One Heat Minute, uh, which is a podcast I've been listening to while biking. I know I don't endorse that in any way, shape, or form, but it has been... Wait, you, but you just did. But I just did. Sure. Yeah. Um, Blake has uh, taken the monumental task of recording a minute for every minute, oh no, probably an hour or so, for every minute of the movie Heat. About 42 and a half minutes yeah. on average. <laughs> uh, which culminated in a fantastic episode with the man himself, Michael Mann. Uh, and you are also the producer of several other podcasts, uh, many of which involve Michael Mann, including The Last 12 Minutes of the Mohicans, uh, Increment, Increment Vice, the Paul Thomas Anderson film, All the President's Minutes, Miami Nice, Josie and the Pussycats, and yeah. the upcoming Zodiac Chronicle. Blake, how are you? Thank you for joining us. Thank you, gents, for having me so much. I'm awesome. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I am on the precipice of Zodiac Chronicle. I'm having the tiniest holiday in kind of podcasting holiday in between all of those other projects to get into Zodiac. But yeah, it's 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 really good to be here. It's nice to get the invite. And it's awesome to hear that uh, One Heat Minute is your biking soundtrack. That's I, really cool. I, it is my biking soundtrack. And I've also jumped over to, in, to Increment Vice right now as well. Because oh. I'll admit, I, like, um, ab absolutely heat is a movie I can throw on at any moment of the day. Anyone talking about heat, I'm, I'm there. Well, today, in American time, it is the 25th anniversary of the premiere in Burbank of... Oh. Heat. Oh, I, I was yeah. not aware of that. I'm, I am yeah. a Heat fan, but no, I'm not, I'm not invested. I, I'm not as well uh, versed in the law surrounding Heat. I like the movie a lot, and I'll talk, yes. I'll talk about it anytime. But yeah, no, I'm not because uh, I've listened to you on your podcast talk about the diner where things were shot, or uh, you mm. know, like wandering around the airport where places uh, where scenes were shot as well. And I'm like. That is really invested. Really pleased that you lo you're digging uh, Increment Vice. Travis Woods and I, who's a dear friend, um, he's the main host of that show. That's a completely different vibe. Yeah. Um, Paul Thomas Anderson is someone I really greatly admire. And, um, you know, when we're coming up w with projects on One Heat Minute Productions, sometimes people go, you guys should do this and you guys should do that. And um, if you have never read Travis's incredible essay have, on yeah. Bright Wall Dark Room... Uh, about in Inherent Vice. Uh, Inherent Vice that always was kicking around in my mind as a podcast I'd love to do, and I told Travis that he should do it, and he uh, kindly obliged, and I gave him basically a year of work. Um, and uh, so yeah, he went off and did the lion's share of that work, but I'm extremely proud of that too. So, you yeah, know, thank you for shouting it out, and I'm glad to hear you're enjoying it as well. Well, I, I have to be honest with you. I because I, I, I've listened to a few episodes and I know you guys love Inherent Vice, and I'm a huge Paul Thomas Anderson fan. I've read uh -oh. the Pinchon novel. That is a movie I've never quite got in yeah. sync with. So I'm actually Good. so I'm enjoying listening to the podcast because it's 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 building me up to a revisit of the movie where I'm hoping it um uh it, it clicks into place for me. But at this point Well listen, by the sounds of things, a few episodes in that's three in my book. So you've only got forty two episodes to go for <laughs> it to not click much in. Longer. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah, about yeah, yeah. It's about, you know, nearly two hundred hours. I yeah. got I got a while to go. But uh, yeah. So 
a long list of accolades that Shahir has just read for you, Blake. I want to add one that I just noticed right now. Yes. And that is, uh, out of the three of us, you destroy both of our beards <laughs> by well, a massive scale. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, it's it's. I can claim no. Uh, I can claim no part in it. My Maltese heritage. Uh, it just. It, this is what it does every single day. And uh, yeah, it's just. This is one of my many talents: is growing a very a full beard very quickly and immediately. And uh, this is, you know, this is what I do. It's what good. I add to the game. It's, yeah, it's good. Shahir's look makes him look like he's been like locked away for a long time. Mine looks like I'm like a really garbage '80s corporate villain. Like I don't know what, but no, it's nice to it's nice that someone's bringing the beard game up on this show. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Now, I, um, when, when uh, our mutual friend introduced us, uh, I sort of scratched my head and thought, what would be interesting for us to talk about, given that uh, the history of what you do as a podcaster? And um, it struck me that, that something that you are particularly focused on is uh, either cinematic obsessions or comfort movies. Um, uh, maybe I'm paraphrasing there, but I kind of wondered about the process by which you choose a movie for One Heat Minute Productions. Uh, the best way I can describe it is an unhealthy relationship with a movie. <laughs> like, like that is, you know, if anyone's ever asked for advice, how do you choose these things? What would you do? And, and genuinely there's been some amazing suggestions, people going, Oh, you should do this. I should do that. And my first test internally is, am I, am I a creep with that movie? Like, could yeah. I be charged for stalking that movie? <laughs> yeah. And if, if the answer is no, then just walk away. Like it's, right. it's, it's like, it's like, it's the old heat line, like, you know, 30 it's seconds flat, you know, yeah. you gotta, you gotta be able to sacrifice and walk away. And the movies that I simply can't walk away from are my choices. And I think that that's pretty fair. Like rewatchability is a huge thing. Comfort is a huge thing, but I don't, I don't know. It's a weirder thing than comfort. It's yeah. like, sometimes it's about resets. Um, there was a time when I was a film critic and I was like really trying to establish myself and I was emerging on the scene and you're seeing every single movie, you're reviewing every single movie. I was reviewing some for radio, some for blogs, you know, doing some editing now and then. And if I saw a shit movie, I would watch Heat. Right. Like when yeah. I got home. Yeah. Like, I would like a go, cleanser? Yeah. I would come home at like 10 o'clock at night from the theater and I'd go, eh. Yeah. Why do I even care? Like, why do I even care about movies? And then I'd have to put heat on. And so I think that there are those kinds of films that you you genuinely have to have an unhealthy relationship with in, in many ways and, and that you're fascinated with and you continuously return to. And it's not, in my mind, it's not just enough. Um, it's not just enough that you maybe revisit it every second year or every couple of years. For me, it's... If you ask my wife, it's the best, like, you know, the first, uh, you know, the first person witness, um, how many times I've watched heat, she would not be able to tell you, right. but she has definitely <laughs> said again, 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 many times. So I think that that's, that's definitely part of it. It's about, it's something that gets under your skin, literally like an itch that can't be scratched anymore. And I feel like if that's the kind of movie that I approach it, that gives you the energy and the passion to talk with people about it at length. Now, just out of curiosity, that kind of got me curious because I, I, all of us came to this sort of discussing movies into a microphone one way or the other uh, vocation question mark very, yeah. very differently, I think. Um, <laughs> was there was there a film for you what, before, like as you started or right when you started there where you're like, yep, I like this or I hate this or it gives me some sort of feeling so much that this is why you wanted to do uh, why you wanted to get into film criticism and, and film podcasting. 
want hate is hate is the, hate the, is one. the one hate is the film like i studied it i studied michael mann i studied cinematic authorship it was kind of a gateway drug into what i think is like some of the best eras of cinema it was like gateway in between 1968 1980 that was my broad definition you go to american cinema you go to the world cinema and there's an incredible lot of interesting things that are happening internationally and locally and you know I had done other podcasts and had a lot of fun. You know, I, I, I came up under, a, you know, a, a people, you know, internationally wouldn't know this guy, but Dale Sinden is a film critic in, in this country who I mm -hmm. kind of was mentored by, like coming up on radio. And he like taught me how to radio, be a radio critic because he was like a traditional radio critic. And that was my first podcast. So I learned so much from him about, you know, talking oh, to great. your audience and approaching that stuff. And he, he gave me all the guidance in the world. But when it came to podcasts, what was happening and like this vocation or this like expression, I was like, I think this is where I can add value to the conversation, like having good discourse. But I never found the thing that drove me like that may, that was me. Right. Um, and the stupid thing was, uh, you know, for better or worse, One Heat Minute was born out of a really drunken night at Sydney Film Festival. <laughs> I was talking to two of my friends, my dearest friends, uh, Garth Franklin and Stu Coote, and I was whinging and pitching ideas to them about what I would do. And I had a bit of a goodwill hunting moment, I call it, which is Stu kind of going, no, what do you want to do? And I'm like, well, I want to give him this pitch. He goes, no, what do you want to fucking do? Like got in my face. Like, and, and like, instead of breaking down and crying, um, good, you know, Matt Damon style, I just said, I just want to fucking talk about heat every day. <laughs> and he did the best and worst thing that's ever happened to me in my life, which is I'd listen to that. And so thus began the journey, right? You find these things where you're like, I only want to talk about this thing. And so that's, I feel like if anyone's ever asked me or just anything, it's like, there are movies, there are texts that people have. And it's like, how do you engage with it? And how do you most uniquely do it? And, and for me, like that whole one heat minute project is just my undying love for that movie and, and expressing it every episode. And, um, and then I, I think we found the show's voice, you know, it, it took a little while to find the show's true voice, but you know, kind of, Funnily enough, like an hour in, I feel like the show hits this purple patch and it just like doesn't stop. And, right. um, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's a fascinating, incredible and, uh, you know, insane project. And I love every second of it. I, I'm nice. remembering uh, Val Kilmer's character and Heat saying about his wife, uh, the sun rises and sets with her or something like yeah. that. And I, I, I'm, the that's sun the way rises I and sets with that movie. Yeah. yeah that's, that's, that's what it. it is for you. And <laughs> well, it. With that in mind, I, I, I sort of scratched my brain a little bit and thought about what movies we could talk about. And obviously, you being from Sydney and me being from Wellington, I wondered about the, the Antipodean uh, connection we could possibly make. And the two movies I came up with were David Michaud's Animal Kingdom and the other... One of my favorite films. One of, absolutely, I saw that uh, in a screening uh, with him in the audience and I was the worst audience member because during the Q&A I think I asked four questions I just kept, oh you were that guy I was guy. that guy and he kept on he was just like nobody was asking questions and I just was like kept on raising my hand uh, I was absolutely floored by that film and am obsessed by it uh, the other was uh, Andrew Dominic's The Assassination of Jesse James. Now, Andrew Dominic was born in Wellington, New Zealand, where I'm from. He actually visited my film class when I was a student there. Um, Amazing. Uh, which 
I'm really annoyed about it because I actually missed that class. Uh, <laughs> what were you doing, Shahir? I'm not sure what I was doing, but I like uh, yeah. at, the, at that point he'd only done Chopper, and so I was like kind of like, oh, the guy who did Chopper, yeah, I'll go check it out at some point. And so a friend of oh, mine man. gave me notes, um, and I recall a lot of <laughs> you slacker. I was a slacker. That's such a slack. <laughs> was such a slack thing to do. You you got notes from the class where someone visited, which means nothing happened. They nothing just happened. came and yeah. talked. Nothing well, happened, and you even got those notes. Well, what was interesting about it is he gave notes about how to make a film, and I I think what I was I was interested in in production more than anything, and I should have gone to that class. But but some of the things he said, which I only got relayed to by notes, have stayed with me my entire life and my entire career yeah. as a filmmaker. And one of the the ones that the, this one thing that um my friend you know I I heard secondhand from him was that if you're really prepared on if you're really prepared with your film and you know what you're doing, half the time you don't as a director you don't actually even need to be on set. And he he kind of he he was drilling home the point that as much preparation as you can do ensures that really everyone knows what what their job is, everyone knows what the shot is, everyone knows what the moments they're looking for. You really don't. He and he he kind of put it this way. He was like, you don't need to be there. You can just set everything up and let the dominoes fall and then walk away. And. Yes. So in a sense, <laughs> I was say, I was actually taking his advice before he gave it to me. Before it was it, this is a time flat circle sort of thing. I I, ta- I take it back. I take all criticism back. That's Look, that's some next level shit. That is really next level shit. But um, <laughs> it is funny that you say that. One of the you know the recent project that we finished, all the president's minutes. Um, yeah. You know, Alan J. Pakula. <laughs> I, uh, one of the greatest stories I heard in the whole series is in our final episode with Jane Alexander, and she yeah. described what it was like being on set with Alan Pakula. And she said, yeah. "You've got the act, you've got these great actors who are on scene, you know. So her and Dustin Hoffman, both classically trained, and you know he was Meisner, and she was a theatrically trained actor. They're both there. She loved to improv. You've yeah. got Gordon Willis, one of the greatest cinematographers of all time." operating the camera himself, these gigantic cameras. you got Redford as the producer hovering around, and she said when Alan was on set, he would sit there like a monk. He would just be meditative and cool and no yapping and no bossing. He would just let the great people around him do their job. And and I think that that is a real testament to maybe that particular style of directing. You know, we yeah. hear about the Michael Bays with the, yeah. with the, with megaphones, the megaphones and the swearing yeah. and the crazy, but, but the real... The real, you know, masters when they are on set are right there. They know exactly what they want. Their people know what they want. They get it in however many takes they're going to get it in, and then you know they are free to the organic process of you know let's let's be exciting and let's uh, and let's capture something that maybe we didn't think we could get in this moment. So, but yeah, he's a great filmmaker and sort of adopted by Australia basically. I know we have it's like Crowded House or Russell Crowe essentially where we yeah. we're not too sure who can take who can claim ownership <laughs> of this pe- of this person. But uh, look, I, let's call let's let's just say you're their dad, I'm yeah. their mom. It's fine. Like it's totally this is fine. how we can be dueling dads. I don't mind however we want to say it. It's it's totally fine. Um, we're both very proud parents. Uh, very proud parents. Yeah. And I'm so pleased that you guys wanted to talk about this film because both of those films animal kingdom and assassination of jesse james have come up as like great films and pe- a few people have known that i've had a relationship with them as like, i really love them um so yeah I'm, I'm thrilled to talk about it and he's kind of a strange anomaly of a filmmaker Andrew. yeah Dominic. he is he comes on the scene and you know he made arguably australia's biggest cult hit of maybe the previous century yeah one of the biggest and culture influencing movies that has ever happened in this country chopper based on 
well, a psychopathic blowhard, um, and uh, with an iconic performance by Eric Banner, who maybe has never been better because he could just be this charming yeah. lunatic. Um, and I think that that's really where he shines. And then he moves into America and makes this sweeping riff on, you know, an American hero. Yeah, <laughs> essentially a cult hero, um, and so that like relationship with criminality, but it's it's on such a massive canvas. It's yeah. on the greatest canvas of all time, and and so yeah, I'm so thrilled that you guys asked to to chat about it. Well, with that in mind as well, I think one of the one of the interesting things about the assassination of Jesse James, which is it came out in 2007, just a little bit earlier before No Country for Old Men and There Will Be mm. Blood, um, which was that kind of period of neo-Western, revisionist Western, um, uh, you know, I, I think these three films really spearheaded the idea that the American myth was being re-examined in cinema, particularly No Country for Old Men and There Will Be Blood. Uh but surprisingly, this film, The Assassination of Jesse James, uh, was, you know, as Mark Kermode once described, is an unloved movie, a movie that has yes. gained um, notoriety the, the, the longer we've stepped away from it. But at the time, uh, open to, I think, in five theaters, Warner Brothers was not that enthused by what they had seen, despite being a fairly faithful adaptation of Ron Hansen's novel. Um, this was a movie that kind of slipped under the radar. And I have to admit, I didn't see it in the theater the first time. Um, I rented it on a, uh, on a DVD, um, like you popped it on, you know, like you with heat popped it on, I think at probably at 11 o'clock at night just to get a feel for it. You know, I do that sometimes just, we'll just kind of pop it on just to see, am I going to watch this tomorrow night or not? And it was a film I, you know, I, I was up till 1am obviously, or what, 2am or something like that. And it was a film I was absolutely mesmerized by the, on the first viewing. And I think on this podcast, whenever we've talked about, Roger Deakins, Brad Pitt, Casey Affleck, I've always talked about this movie as the one that everyone should watch as either the pinnacle of any of those any of those people's career or just a highlight that everyone should see if they haven't seen. Matt, could you tell us, just before we get into it, what The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford is about if no one could guess by the title? Oh, of course, because the Internet New Movie Database takes care of all of this for us. The automation is legit. It describes this film as Robert Ford, who idolized Jesse James since childhood, tries hard to join the reforming gang of the Missouri outlaw, but gradually becomes resentful of the bandit leader. I think that is an apt description. Extremely. Uh, Extremely. It, 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 it gets you in the door. But it's, it's, that's the kind of description that I like because it gets you in the door, but it doesn't really like get into any of the meat and potatoes of like what you're actually going to feel when you are going through the film, nor does it spoil anything, etc. You, um, you could rewrite the Incredibles uh, <laughs> plot in that style. Right, yes, it is about So yeah. Buddy, young boy, wants to be sidekick to Mr. Incredible, loses <laughs> faith when he's no longer allowed there. But, Plot yeah, I mean, the, yeah, yeah. the Incredibles is a sequel to this film. Uh, no, um, fun fact, uh, I actually realized when I started watching it, this is one of those movies that fell into sort of my... Um, my 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 black hole uh, section of my brain being in my head. I was like, I've watched this movie. Of course I've watched this movie. This is a classic. How could I not watch this movie? I hadn't watched this movie. I think I'd been in a room when it was on before. All right. Nice. Um, and, and so, uh, I had it in my head. I'm like, oh yeah, Brad Pitt's Jesse James. No, like, yeah, he's, he's a train. I got it. <laughs> but like, uh, I didn't get it. I didn't, I didn't got it. Um, it was, uh, a very interesting experience to come in as soon like five, 10 minutes in. I'm like, oh yeah. Okay. New, new movie for me. Let's go. Um, 
first and foremost, I mean, we'll talk about a lot of the different things, but um, I was immediately drawn to the the not only the the cinematography and the style in which it was crafted in that regard, but how it mirrored that with the I don't want to call it pace of storytelling, uh, the 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 increments of plot we are given. Uh, and it, it almost was just like these bullet points of like what might be otherwise, if we weren't following Robert Ford, not important moments in the life of Jesse James. Um, and that's always a really interesting way to handle information about a historical character. We actually yes. do that sometimes, um, on, on, uh, the show that I, uh, I show run, uh, I run a YouTube channel called extra credits and we do a series called extra history. And I was noticing a lot of different ways that like this movie, like handles this sort of like the, it focuses on who it wants you to sort of latch onto. And it gives you sort of these smaller moments in who you think like the real main character would be. And now you're just seeing it through this other person's eyes. So I was like, Oh, like this is one of my favorite types of like storytelling. This is great. And then the, the mirroring that with the way that it shot, even down to like the lenses and like the purposeful sort of obfuscation of things. Like it's just the it, 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 yeah, de- <laughs> <laughs> every time, every time I'm like he can't surprise me now. What's he got? No. Yeah. And he did. No, this was, uh, this was, a very interesting film for me to watch. I enjoyed it very much. I'm excited that we've got a first-time viewer on this particular film because mm. I think we'll, uh, for many of our listeners, we'll be introducing them to it for the first time as well. But yeah. Blake, uh, you've already described yourself as as loving this movie. Could you tell us about how you came to it for the first time? I saw it in the theater. Right. I love Andrew Dominic. I had already been an obsessive with Chopper. I think I'd watched it about 55,000 times. <laughs> it was like the high school VHS tape that was going around. Everyone watched it. You would go to people's houses. You would be halfway through it. People quoted lines. Yeah. And so Andrew Dominic became like this thing. Like, oh my God, Andrew Dominic's making a new movie. And it's got, you know, uh, it's got uh, Brad Pitt as Jesse James. It was, it was right in sort of my formative cinephile years. And so like I was seeing a stack of movies. Also, an aside... My brother at the time, because he worked for a distribution company in this, in this country, um, like DVD and video distribution company, had he'd worked for the company for so long, he had a gold card, which allowed him free tickets to any movie. <laughs> and he didn't what? go. You had, Willy Wonka's, you had Willy Wonka's he, movie ticket. He had that. And he would, my brother was like not, he was a moviegoer, but not like obsessive. And at the time I was a university student and I was like, bro, please give me your gold card because then I would go to the movies a lot. So like that year, I reckon 2006 through 2008, almost every big release, any release movie that came out at the cinema that was adult facing, not just like pure kiddie material. I saw it yeah. um, and I saw it at least once. Uh, and sometimes I would like see something great and I would go, wow, I've got to go check that out again and make some time to see it. So this was something I saw in the theater. I was really impressed by it. I love that mood. I love exactly what you talked about with the neo-westerns, you know, this whole trilogy. And these years, like, yeah. you know, 2007 is the year that Zodiac came out. And then you yeah. got 2008, which is, you know, competing in the same year are like Michael Clayton, No Country for Old Men, There Will Be Blood. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, you know, it's insanity. Um, so a really terrific movie year. And so, yeah, I, I came to it there. I saw it. I loved it. I bought it on DVD from the States because I had to order it in because you could not get it in Australia for ages. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, th- you know, this is that long ago. You can't get them. But then um, I had a love for it. But it was also funny that a local cafe that I used to go to in Sydney, um, it, which is a cafe attached to like a motorcycle store called <laughs> Deuce Ex Machina, funnily enough, like Machines <laughs> of the Gods. But that's the brand. Had a little cafe that was there. I can't remember what it was called, but I used to go there pretty frequently in, in Western Sydney. 
And for some reason, there must have been like a psychotic fan of this movie because he would, they would play the movie on silent and have like other ambient music playing all the time. So you would right. go in there and on their video screen is just Assassination of Jesse James by the cat Robert Ford playing over and over again. And I kind of <laughs> loved it. Like I was like, I was like, this is cool. Like I could totally kind of get my coffee and like just marvel at pure visual storytelling um, whilst I'm catching up with friends. And so, yeah, it was this weird thing where I immediately loved it. I watched it. I've continued to watch it more frequently because I think, uh, much like you said, Matt, I really, there's just something about this kind of storytelling mm. and small moments. Um, and also the way that you can really subvert your expectations of what a main character is by leading with these characters in this sort of desperate small moments yeah. um, mm -hmm. that, that I just like, zero in on i'm like oh i love this like it's totally my shit so i i found myself continually going back to it and then again it's just one of those things that like i like this movie also for the fact that you don't have to always necessarily be watching everything if you're really familiar with it you can just have it on and it creates a mood and yeah. and mm. and really you know i've had spotify for a few years now there has not been a soundtrack that i have listened to more almost ever than Nick Cave and Warren Ellis' soundtrack to this movie. It is it's by nuts. far the best movie soundtrack, hands down, almost of any soundtrack I've ever heard. And also just singularly as, as, a, as a font of inspiration for my own writing. Mm. Um, I'm sitting in front of you now with like the scripts for the first four episodes of Zodiac, <laughs> um, of, of, like the Chronicle. And I literally wrote these words to that score. So right. that for me, it's, nice. it's, a, it's a holistic thing. Me being a completist of this Aussie filmmaker I deeply admire. Aussie genre working. Aussie slash New Zealand shared custody Anzac whatever you know it's the score it's the mood it's the storytelling and and just the um, I like ugly history I I I both love you know beautiful uh, you know sort of sweeping epic versions of history where you're kind of told and reinforce all of the stereotypes and the lore of characters but I also love being introduced to the most famous criminal in America ever, or except for maybe John Dillinger, mm -hmm. with him recounting tales of a weird woman who he watched slurp noodles up her nose. <laughs> like, that is the kind of... Like, if you introduce me to a character like that, I'm like, oh, you've got me. I'm in. Yeah. I'm in for the rest of this movie. I kind of... All those choices combined, that sort of tangles up for the alchemy of this movie. And that in 2020 specifically, I think I, I personally, and I feel like maybe society as a whole is kind of, I've said this before, we actually just did Citizen Kane and I talked about this a little bit, like I'm real over the great man trope, like yes. I'm just done, I don't, like it's such a fallacy and it's so strange and when you look at history with a wide lens or if you pay attention in the moment right now like it's all bullshit so like it was so nice to watch a film where here is jesse james quote unquote a great man and you're like oh no he's a dude like he's he's messed up like everybody like this is not like this is not a a, a demigod this is a human being a deeply flawed human being yes. that somehow transcended into pop culture uh, so it was that that was it was nice to see the the deconstruction in that way. Uh, it, and it's funny, Citizen Kane this time around, I was like, I can't, I just couldn't, like, I couldn't get in. And this, I was like, no, this is the great, this is destroying all of that. I like this. So yeah, 
So I think we should, we, uh, and, you know, again, just to echo all those thoughts, I'm deeply obsessed with this film. I uh, watch it, you know, over and over and over again, like you, I have it on as a mood. I've, you know, there's been so many times when I've been on set where I've mentioned a shot from this film and no matter how new uh, a cinematographer and I are as a working relationship, every cinematographer I know knows this movie. Uh, yeah. without a doubt and knows every sh you know i'll say i want uh, a cloud shot i'm like just from imagining Zephy. can we get your boffins because i know that there's probably for your podcasts out there can you please just put you know that meme from uh, a star is born where shahir is like doing the i just want to look at you one more time but 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 it's but it's it's just roger deakins on the set of this movie like i just want to mention roger deakins from the assassination of jesse it's, james it's, just one more time because it's, it's great it's happened want to so get many look times. At you. When we talk when we talk about tilt shift lenses we always talk about the assassination of jesse james when we talk about yeah. light cutting uh through a scene we talk about the assassination of jesse james when we talk about chromatic aberration we talk about the assassination it's like every you know like i I always say I want a cloud shot like the assassination. I'll, we go into details like I like the grain structure in the assassination of Jesse James. Can we, you know, when we're in with a colorist, we, we pull this up. Every cinematographer I know that I've worked with knows this movie, knows now, it well. Now, Blake, I have it in my head. You've started the meme train. I, I, I'm thinking like the bad boyfriend meme, right? So it's whatever film she hears working on, she hears turning around to the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. Yeah, this one. Yeah. Th that, that, yeah. that, that, that exactly. That exactly. But no, it's, 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 it's insane that this movie shorthand is so influential. It's funny that in these... In these subsequent years, and you know, sorry to to, to, to briefly digress on the Zodiac, you've yeah. got these two films yeah. who, at that time, are both almost having a parallel ex reception experience. In yeah. that, they are both films that get made. They are largely unloved, whether they're critically lauded or not. They're kind of unloved from a critical mass standpoint or a huge money making standpoint. And both of them have just aged to this tremendous vintage as we hit 2020, like people are just like, no, they were the things. And yeah. you then retroactively, I think Shahir, you're, you're talking something that has been happening for years. And I think in both of these films, it's so huge is, and even funnily enough, something like super bad, which came out in the same yeah. year, it's lots of different filmmakers making comedies, making neo Westerns, making crime films, are all looking back on this year. And some of these three films that, are, that certainly those three films that I just mentioned being made and going, oh, I would love a bit of that. Like, can yeah. I do a bit of that? Like, and you see it later and it just echoes and ebbs and flows. And you're like, Oh, they watched assassination of Jesse James before they made this movie or this TV show. Yeah. Or they watched Zodiac before they made this and they wanted a little bit of that. I'll have what she's having sort of thing. Well, um, and but that, that, yeah, it's, yeah, it's it's really funny. And I, th I think, you know, without speculating too much about what happened between 2008 and now, we obviously know that the in 2008, two influential <laughs> movies came out, which changed the dynamic of cinema as we know it today. And mm. that was The Dark Knight and Iron Man. And at that point, we could argue that this, there is cinema before Iron Man and there is cinema after Iron Man. And I think the cinema before Iron Man, you could hi hypothesize, was made up at an apex by the four films that you've just mentioned, which oddly were four films, I think, like you, um, with the exception of The Assassination of Jesse James, which I watched at home, were movies that I saw one night and immediately had to go back and see the next night because yeah. I, was, I wanted to validate my feelings about it because, you know, for, for example, with Zodiac, I was like, I think I just watched the masterpiece, but I can't quite tell. I'm going to go back and check it out. And then, you know, the next time I was like, yep, definitely was. Same with There Will Be Blood, same with No, with no Country for All Men, and most certainly with the assassination of Jesse James. But it was, it would, I guess the thing that's interesting to me is that um, 
No Country, and you know, No Country obviously swept the Oscars, won Best Picture that year. Um, so they get things. I mean, a clock's right yeah. twice a day. Yeah, exa- well, exactly. Well, exactly. Right and it was, and arguably, it's hard to deny that No Country is pretty much a perfect movie. Um, there will be undeniable. blood. Was, un, yeah, undeniable. Um, there, there will be blood. Was a movie I kind of. I, I felt wasn't as perfect or what was was slightly more flawed, but one that got under my skin and I had to keep revisiting no matter what. Um, and the assassination of Jesse James, I, I think what had happened with that film for me in particular was that it was a film that nobody talked about and nobody and, and very few people had seen. <laughs> so it became for me a rallying cry to kind of assess whether someone was someone I wanted to get yeah, on they with. Knew their shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or just wanted to, you know, someone I think would enjoy this because it's not, it, unlike those other two films or unlike Zodiac as well, it's not a film I easily recommend. Um, be, and basically the, the litmus test is, do you like Terrence Malick movies or not? And if you do, you might like the assassination, you probably will love the assassination of Jesse James. Um, but I, I think the, the other reason is, is that, there, there is the you know you you guys both briefly touched on this. There is this sort of like apex of not only Roger Deakins cinematography, which is again undeniable. It's it's the it's arguably the most beautiful film lens in the twenty first century. Um, Deakins, who was you know the master cinematographer, is still at the peak of his game, um, despite you know being nominated for No Country for Old Men at the same time. And I think Richard Ellsworth was for um, There Will Be Blood uh, one that year. Um, Mm. but also Brad Pitt, ultimately for me at the height of his powers, as both as a producer, a person who would go on to produce Oscar winners like 12 years a slave, uh, and understanding what this film was meant to be and assembling it, you know, with, with a, uh, a helmet like Andrew Dominic at the, uh, at the forefront of it. Um, but also, as you mentioned, uh, Nick Cave and Warren, Warren Ellis's score, which, uh, underlies, I think. For me, what is, I guess, if I was to sum up why I love this movie, which is a, it's a strange way to sort of paraphrase it, but it's such a profoundly sad testament to what the Old West was. It's yes. so profound. Like, every time I watch this, I think this movie understands sadness and loss more than I can encapsulate in any word. I, feel, I, yeah. I watch this, and from the very first frame, the clouds over the, over the house, I go, this is a movie that understands pain, suffering, and the the kind <laughs> of um, the pathos of being a human being more than anything I can kind of describe. And that, and to me, it, it may be something that says a lot about me, but it's it's there's a specific. <laughs> that's the reason I revisit it all the time. Is well, spoiler alert: the old west sucked. <laughs> uh, if if you go, if you think about what people had to deal with in that time, it is all sadness and hardship. Just like I mean, and again, I I am coming from a, a person who loves uh, you know sci-fi nonsense films. So like, it's the same thing with space exploration. Like, you can paint it like cool and fun. Like, if you just sort of hand wave all of the difficult shit people have to do, and then you have movies like this where it's just like no. <laughs> This is all sad, uh, and it, because because the time there was no, it, it, it's oh man, it's so it's so dichotomous with the myth of Jesse James, mm. like 
you, you, on one hand, again, great man trope, you know, the, even the songs and the things that people used to say about him, rob from the rich and gave to the poor. I don't know the history a ton. I'm not <laughs> no. sure he did that much. No, um, no. Maybe no. like a bag fell out of a <laughs> out of a carriage or something and they're like, oh, Robin Hood. But like, and, and then you look at it like from the lens that you just described here and the way that this film portrays this entire thing is just kind of malaise and misery. Mm. And you're like, oh God. <laughs> <laughs> and, but it's nice because like I'm not a I'm not a huge Western fan. Yeah. And so with this this time period with this sort of deconstruction of the Western or sort of like the what did you say you called it something like the neo westerns yeah neo Western thank you uh, that's when I started paying attention to westerns again like the only other one that I really resonated with back in classic Western Western was High Noon because I liked the the concept of it uh, not that anything like particularly moved me I was like this is a cool mm-hmm. like tropey type thing to do um, so yeah I. Uh, I, I, I just, I think it is a, a wonderful, di- it, this seems like the perfect mesh of of story you want to tell and style in which you want to tell it about a time that needed to be told like this in that particular moment. It was, it's a real nice <laughs> culmination of like, of everything. Yeah, it's a, I'm a huge Western fan. And right. so, okay. you know, that, so that, that's my, like my bread and butter. Cause I, I love Westerns because they're ultimately just morality tales that mm. usually yeah. are saying way more about the time in which they're made than the time that they're actually being produced or set. Yeah. And so the, I, I like to think of every, there's like a, a pre and post Deadwood. You know, you mm. talked about Iron Man, yeah, like yeah. in the Western genre, there's pre and post Deadwood and another Australian slash, uh, 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 no, New Zealander slash adopted Australian, a funny comedian in Australia called Tony Martin. Um, he, he, he has a great, he has a great podcast and, uh, you know, from many years, a cult podcast called get this. And Tony Martin used to play a game with his friends that I adopted too. Whenever you watch Westerns after you watch Deadwood, which right. is, what old-timey Western character would survive in Deadwood? <laughs> so you could watch any movie. You could, for example, watch High Noon. You yeah. could, for example, watch The Searchers. Do you think that Ethan Edwards, John Wayne's character from The Searchers, would survive in Deadwood? Yes. Would Marty? Absolutely not. He'd be fed to the pigs in three days. There's kind of there's this thing that happens at this moment where it's like the unglamour of surviving on the frontier and the just the sheer brutality of the thing. Um, uh, you know, on both sides, whether it's law enforcement that don't mind hanging you, killing you doing whatever or people you know people being robbed and i think that just the simple brutality of a gun butt you know violence being rendered um in 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 realistic and practical terms like you know we see people get hit in the head with a gun and they just pass out and oh they wake up and they live the rest of their lives not get a gun butt to the head bleed out and die immediately on the spot from just one clobber with this you know steel thing and so i think that this is definitely one of those post edward westerns but and not not to say that the movie ripped it off but just to say that it's like no this is time this is right. our time to tell a story that is unglamorous from the from the get-go and especially as a person you know you know as you say with the book um and that wonderful hugh ross narration like setting the scene of a guy who feels like he's a guerrilla fighter for the southern people and immediately going like whoa like right now even just hearing those words in 2020 you're like man this is a this is not a fun guy um uh, and that kind of outlaw and just you know musing over that I, i i i love this whole i love any westerns that took the lessons, the right lessons from Deadwood, which is it is extremely tough and and we want to tell this as candidly and as ugly as possible. And then you pl- have have a, a, a whale of a time playing with that, that, that I, sort of you, uh, I, scene set. Ironically, though, one of the odd things about this film is it's so sexy. 
It's such a sexy yeah. movie. Like it's yeah. such a delicious movie to watch. Like Brad Pitt in his long coat and his hat strikes a figure like against the landscape. We were just like, okay, this is what movies really are. You know, like this is what movies can do to the human form. Yeah. Uh, and and this is what what how beautiful the ugly truth can be. And it, it's, I think, I think there's, there's that sort of like double line for me because I, I've watched a, a few episodes. I have to admit, I'm not as well-versed in Deadwood as I probably should be. And I'm not, and, and, and as, as far as genres that I came up with, um, that I watched, I was more invested in crime and thriller movies than I was in Westerns. Um, yeah. I've watched many, many of the classics, but they've never been movies I've revisited. Prior to this uh, episode, I actually did watch Samuel Fuller's, um, uh, I shot Jesse James just as a kind of, just as a primer to think about how this story was told in two different periods. And, yes. and I think the, the sort of mournfulness is, is, is played in that way, which is that it, it is desperately sad, but it's also like gorgeous and, and <laughs> yeah. like, you know, like it's kind of like unbearably gorgeous, which is, which, which in a way makes it even sadder that, that it is so, you know, it's but got, he's, he's gorgeous. She, yeah. yeah. Like Brad the way Pat that he's portrayed, like he's a beautiful man. He cuts that's this beautiful silhouette. Yeah. It's those things. And, and I think that that's how you go. Oh, he, despite all the like crime, how vulgar and <laughs> crass he is yeah. and brutal he is. He's still this extremely attractive and charming. And there's just a sensual quality about him. The choice for Brad Pitt as a producer of this movie to play Jesse is almost like Robert Redford being made to play, Butch Cat. you know, uh, uh, no, Robert Redford as a producer being made, to play um, Bob Woodward because right. Bob Woodward looks nothing like him. Yeah. And Jesse James, like, you know, for all his fame, does not look like Brad Pitt. Not many people right. do. <laughs> and so it's just like if you if you put that person in that role, they do they they can make something much more sexy and 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 and, and sensual as possible. And Brad I think Brad Pitt is that's why I think he loves working with Andrew Dominic because he loves the that yeah. exact beautifully oxymoronic contradiction of the most attractive and alluring and engaging person, but is also a vulgar, violent, slovenly, yeah. conspiratorial psychopath. And it's it's oddly this is the this is the mistake most viewers make when they watch Fight Club for the first time, which is that they're seduced <laughs> by Brad Pitt's attractiveness <laughs> and they miss his nihilism, but. It's impossible to miss the ugliness of Jesse James in this film, despite Matt is, Brad Pitt. Matt is going to burst. He needs to say I, something. Okay. I go, I, I'll go one further just in the Fight Club thing. I don't think they missed the point. I think Brad Pitt is so charismatic and sexy in that movie that they just go to his nihilist side. They're like, yep, nihilism, great, let's go. Like, that's what happens. But I think like the cleverness, it's the wrong yeah. message for what they're trying to do, but it's almost like Brad Pitt in that situation did his job too well as well, Tyler. I mean, look, David Fincher knows how to use Brad Pitt in a movie you yeah. know, at any point. But I think the cleverness, the, the 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 deceptive trickery here is the scene that you just mentioned, Blake, which is the the train robbery scene, which begins as you know, again, probably the most gorgeously lit moment in in American cinema in the 21st century. The the train, you know, with the single light coming down, illuminating these faces, you know, shrouded in hoods um, across the train tracks is just singularly the most beautiful and haunting image you can commit to screen. And then it's counterpoint with how ugly Brad Pitt's actions are inside the train. You know, his, his, we see this man who is the, um, you know, the, 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 the keeper of the safe or whatever he is in the, in the safe room. And he is not 
Um, he is not trying to antagonize uh, Brad Pitt. He just simply wants to get them out of there. But yet he is brutalized by him for no other reason than I think uh, Jesse James's amusement and his uh, and his and a show of power towards you know from to his other men. Um, and it's and there's no mistake. Like I, I I do understand how people watch Fight Club and think Tyler Durden is pretty cool. I don't think you watch this scene and think Jesse James is cool. I think you go, that dude is actually a psychopath. The balance is very well struck yeah. here. Um, the the way in which the way in which we are shown again, sort of this, like you can understand why Robert Ford is enthralled, mm. even though. All of the reasons, like, I mean, R Robert Ford has a couple different things in this movie uh, going for him because he's enthralled basically almost like a childlike wonder with him with the stories and the comic books and, you know, all that stuff leading up, that little shoebox under his bed, etc. But then once he's in his presence, he does the thing that, like, basically any fanboy that, that isn't great uh, in a social setting does – and and we've all been there. I mean, I, I've done stupid stuff around uh, <laughs> celebrity that I'm near, etc. But like, so that's sort of a relatable thing. But like, you can the, the way that 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 Deacons portrays Jesse James is this mo this point of beauty and wonder in an otherwise sad world, and. All that does it's it's so strange because there's another side thing that that is is kind of important too. Sadness, if portrayed correctly or looked through the right sort of prism, is also beautiful, which is a weird sort of thing to say. And if you have a focal point like Brad Pitt as Jesse James, that is the prism that the whole thing is just like, oh, this entirely depressing nightmare is now the most gorgeous thing I'm looking at right now. And, also and it all makes sense. You're looking at him through Casey Affleck's Bob Floyd, who you yeah. just yeah. know from the outset. You know, there's a beautiful... like. Again, casting is so phenomenal in yeah. this movie. To cast Sam Shepard, who may be one of the coolest mofos that's ever walked the face of the earth, as you know, writer, poet, actor. Yeah. I mean, just <laughs> cool, cool, cool guy. Yeah. Um, as Frank, and Frank's ability in the opening stanza of this film to essentially look straight at Bob Ford, <laughs> immediately sum him up in like. 15 seconds for what the rest of the movie will then have to make us wallow in. Yeah. Um, yep. it, it, I think that that is so powerful yeah. uh, and watching that, that way that you just continuously watch how pathetic and sniveling he is and desperate. And he's then compared to almost every member of this crew as that they, they all complete, he's beneath every one of them. They all do deplorable things and he continues to like, set the bar even lower for what a human yeah. being should be. It's just like, oh God, like not only are you the worst, Bob Ford, but you're worse than all these other guys and they're all pieces of shit as well. And you're just the, and, and the way that the movie tracks him and you follow him and you absorb him by, you know, being part of his gaze in large chunks of the movie, um, you then feel like completely squashed by Jesse and, 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 you know, Jesse does do some bad things and, and they're all doing bad things all the time. Mm. Um, but it's like, it's, I think it's that combination of all those things working together and your completely, you know, your pivot to being and absorbing what Bob is viewing and how he's yeah. viewing Jesse, I think is just reinforces that like, Oh, of course I'm never going to be like that guy. 
So I'm never going to be like him. <laughs> I think Casey Affleck's reactions after he says a line are some of the best things he's ever... Because he'll do this thing <laughs> yeah. where he'll say something that he thinks is pithy and fun, and then he'll just like slide his eyes because he's completely unconfident in what he's saying and knows that nobody else has registered what he said. And he just... It makes him look more pathetic. Um, you know, like the I think the line at the dinner table, he said, that would have been funny if it was actually funny or something along those lines, you know, like, and he just sort yes. of slides his eyes from left to right. Um, I think, yeah, it's, it's sort of a beautiful concert of, of casting between those two. And I, I mean, okay. So what I want to, uh, you know, like round table right now is we've, well, Blake, you and I have seen the movie a few times, Matt, mm. you've, this is the first time around. I'm curious yes. what the, what the main takeaway that you had with this viewing, whether it be your first or repeated, like, what is the thing that you kind of got out of, watching it this time around i think what i tried to do and this is just kind of a thing that i find myself doing more and more because i repeat view different films that i deep dive on is i just tried to like i wanted to get into the heads of the relationships of the support cast because mm -hmm. i just love all the guys that are in the support cast yeah. like rockwell i actually really like i'm not a big fan of jeremy renner but he's great in yeah. it um garrett dillahunt i love garrett dillahunt um paul schneider as dick little is so wonderful um but just watching because you know as part of that opening narration with hugh ross he talks about like they hired this sort of bunch of cold tired like deadbeat guys to sort a of compliment of their gang rooms to yeah. compliment their gang <laughs> and what I love is the core gang because what you're meant to think, at least in the beginning, I love that dichotomy of like he hired a bunch of rubes and then you go and see all these like guys going, oh, I had this great relationship and, you know, she gave me a fair price and they're all like talking dirty <laughs> jokes and dirty stuff. But they're the core gang. Like they're not the rubes who are like low class. They're actually in the upper echelons of the gang. So how low class is this group yeah. is basically what you want to talk about. So I, I find this time was like really watching these guys' relationships and trying to clock the actors portraying uh, the dawning of A, the end of this gang, B, what it meant for them as far as being out of Jesse's good graces, and C, then looking at Bob differently. Mm. So Robert Ford, sorry, Casey yeah. Affleck's character, because as they are going through, you're watching some of them react differently to him. like, And he was he's just like, nothing he's like gum on your shoe like for the beginning of the movie and watching them go what's he doing and it's pathetic and oh god he's so desperate and pathetic he might actually do some bad stuff here like i just i was i was riveted by watching all those guys clock him as a as a foe yeah rather than just as a fly that's buzzing around your head i was really riveted this time in watching that whole the whole arc of all those guys in that crew the internal dynamics of the crew is really pity and it's it feels very like if this person just says this one line in the wrong way and it's misinterpreted they like they the entire relationship like their entire relationship is built on a you know foundation of lies anyway but as soon as one yes. person just says something they're willing to cut each other out completely and you can see Jesse you know that's what Jesse's that's how Jesse views probably everybody except for Frank um, yes but uh, I think the the performance I really latched onto this time was Paul Schneider, um, you know, who uh, was fantastic in David Gordon Green's um, George Washington. But like here, he's a 
proverbial snake in the grass, you know, like literally (laughs) he figuratively like curls around as a snake in the grass and his, and his, you know, Matt, you mentioned before the, the power of his words, you know, everything can be hidden with Mm -hmm. vocabulary. His like, that's his chief tool for manipulating other people is, is his vocabulary. And yeah, that performance is so, is so smart and it's so razor thin, you know, like it's all based on glances and just a little upturn of the cheek and, you know, very finely tuned. I think, I think that that dynamic really stuck out to me as well. Matt, there was a real, there was a real, um, uh, as far as the dynamic was concerned, the, the moment I sort of glatched on and saw what was going on, there was a real Regina George vibe yes. to, uh, to Jesse yeah, James yeah. along with sort of the rest of the gang. Like it, like there were all the different mean girls trying to get around <laughs> Regina George's orbit. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's so funny to see the different ways that each of them tried to do it. Yeah, Jeremy uh, Renner's character is like, I'm his cousin, you know? like Yeah, I'm his cousin. Of course I'm his favorite. Like, I'm his cousin. Like, wait, why do he ask you to do this thing? Yeah. No, 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 no. But I'm this is fine. I'm his cousin. I've done this. Um, and yeah, Casey so Affleck I, I just happens to be Regina George's mom the whole time. Like just like you know, yeah. she's just like, girls, <laughs> I'm cool. Like that's who Casey Affleck's character is most like in Mean Girls. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so there was a couple weird little. I don't know. I, I was getting Mean Girl vibes, and that's never a bad thing. Um, yeah, Great, Paul. Uh, Matt. Well, for you, this being a first time viewing, what what were the things that stuck out to you? So a couple things. I've, I've been singing a lot of praises with the film. I, I do want to sort of say one thing. Those praises came later for me. Like, obviously, cinematography, gorgeous, performances, great. I found myself, while watching this, and maybe it because maybe it's because there was such, like, actual beautiful visual spectacle going on and auditory. I want to talk about the, the soundtrack later. I know you both mentioned it. Um, but I didn't latch on. I didn't suture myself in here till about 45 minutes until the film was over. Like, basically after, uh, spoiler alert, uh, Jesse James dies. Um, then it goes through uh, Robert Ford's journey where I would, that's where I had my holy shit moment because mm-hmm. I didn't remember that aspect of the story. Like, I didn't do any research beforehand on this. And I was like, that's fucking, he did plays. <laughs> he did fucking yeah, plays. Yeah. Like, and, and like, that's when I like, that's when sort of things sort of snapped in. And I remember finishing the movie and being like, that is a beautiful piece of cinema. Okay. And I was like, I, I thought I was going to come into this podcast. I watched it early this week, and I'm very glad I did, because I found myself throughout this week thinking about it mm. more and more. I, I Literally, when I was done, I was like, I don't know if I'm going to have – I can talk about the technical stuff. But, like, I didn't know if I'd have, like, through points and, like, mm. I don't know, the, like, the deeper meaning stuff. But it all, like, came to me later, and that's something I haven't had in a movie in a very long time. I've either had that, like – that sort of suture moment instantly and been like, this is my thing and I can do it then or I just don't. And here it was a real slow burn. Mm. Um, so that was sort of my experience. I think something that threw me off in the moment, and Blake, you brought it up beforehand, was the narration. Oh, he Ross. Yeah. Not the, I think the script yeah. for the narration was very strong, but there was something... <laughs> I couldn't shake, like, and I know this is not him riffing on it or whatever. Maybe it's the other way around. There was something very Wes Anderson-esque about it, like, if, if Wes Anderson was being serious. Do you know the, Blake, do you know the story of uh, of how Hugh Ross came to be the narrator on this film? No, I don't. Tell me. Uh, he was Tell the, us. He was the assistant editor on the movie. 
and and the, and the narration was a temporary narration that that he basically put in for screeners and uh the story goes that warner brothers really didn't know what to do with this movie at all they uh he would uh, hugh ross would actually be running the screeners with his voice in it um for executives and there's a story of like him uh basically running a screening and walking out and overhearing the executives basically laughing about how they all they needed was two more cloud shots or something like that and you know just laughing about it because basically they just they 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 I think the the notion was was that Warner Brothers thought they were going to get um, something like 310 to Yuma, you know, like a, a Western shoot 'em up with an A-lister um, directed by a young hotshot from Australia, you know, who directed one of the, the most important crime films of Australian cinema um, and could could bring something new to this. And when they got basically uh, sort of a, a Terrence Malick movie they were a little bit sort of taken aback by it and they didn't really know what to do with it. And Andrew Dominic, uh, uh, the other th- story is, is that, uh, and Hugh Ross was there, was, was there when this happened is that Spielberg's editor came in and recut the movie down to an hour and 50 minutes. And Hugh Ross describes it as nobody watched that cut. They just, they were so um, ready to give up on this movie entirely that the cut wasn't very good and nobody watched it anyway. So when, by the time Dominic came to, you know, basically solidifying his cut, um, by the way, if you listen to Team Deacon's, Roger Deacon's podcast, he talks about there's a four hour cut of this movie, which is apparently yeah. his preferred cut. But Dominic uh, seems to be quite happy with the with the cut that we saw at 160 minutes. Um, he just said... Listen, this voiceover that we've been using in Temp, which is essentially the assistant editor recording in the in the back of the edit suite, is kind of the preferred, my preferred one. I, I don't, you know, like there was sort of talk of going to like uh, a name voice, you know, something like a Morgan Freeman or or something like that. But Dominic was just like, look, if you guys don't give a shit about this movie, I'm going to go with the one that's actually been embedded <laughs> in my head. Like. That's crazy. Um, and Hugh Ross has only As, done a couple of other, uh, I think he did The Age of Adeline or something like that, and a couple of other narration, uh, things like that. But this this was not, um, I guess, it, the, the, the voiceover it reminds me most of is Ricky Jay and Magnolia. It kind of feels mm. like that sort of very wry, matter-of-fact, not a voiceover person, but just someone kind of telling the story. Well, as a as a as a fellow uh, editor turned voice actor, <laughs> I don't want to besmirch the performance. But there was something that disconnected me from the rest of the film. Mm. Like it, it, and I don't know, I don't know what it was. And I was hoping that sort of talking through it with both of you, I could figure it out because oftentimes it, I think that might've been why it didn't like suture me in right away. Like every time that came in, it kicked me back a little bit and it felt almost like, you know what it might be? It might be the, the, the problem of being, I've been trained with the films that I have watched that voiceover in that style is supposed to be in my brain like pseudo serious here is a serious man reading a bunch of serious lines about serious things but it's supposed to be a joke like in lots of films that i have seen so maybe when i came here all of those movies that are trying to do like a comedy spoof on what this was i've already had it ingrained like that's the trick it's a waste that approach. yeah that might be why i didn't like like I didn't click with it and why it like it booted me. And then there was a lasso that would pull me back, but I never got to that real nice, like flow state. So I, I remember liking it at the beginning cause I was unfamiliar. And later on, I've come to appreciate a very casual tone. And I think all of us who are like audiophiles as well and practice in podcasts, there's something about when you find certain people in podcasters, you know, uh, uh, um, 
that uh, when you come to their voices and you find that they can do a completely different style than you, like yeah. it, maybe that's just me. Like I'm, I'm that kind of guy where I like, I hear someone who is so drastically different to me on a podcast and sounding different. I'm like, Oh, like that's a, that's a different style to me. They talk completely different to me. I'm interested. Like I want to, I, I, I want to hear them. Like um, for example, there's another great podcaster um, by the name of Sam Fragoso who does a podcast called talk easy. Um, and he, Sam has this like really great, Tempo, timbre, calm, mellifluous thing that happens. And I don't talk like that. Right. <laughs> like, like, I don't. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of what I have come to appreciate about Hugh Ross's thing because it is not, if you said I need a narration for this, you, you know, you maybe think of, you know, those big actors, you know, the, like we said, Morgan Freeman's or something that, that, that are giving some authoritative mm-hmm. punctuation point of like what things should happen. And Hugh Ross is just like very mellifluous. The music moves into that more kind of lyrical, like star map thing. Like it yeah. goes off into this, you know, op, off into the cosmos. And I just, that's what I really dug about it. Because again, that lack of familiarity earlier, I'm like, I know nothing, I'm a, as an Aussie, I know nothing about Jesse James other than like, oh, he's the famous cowboy. Yeah. And then seeing right. this movie, it like kicks you in the teeth of like, oh no, he was a complete dirtbag and he's had a really great publicist in these dime <laughs> store things. Um, you know, just like Richard Harris's character in Unforgiven, mm. um, um, English Bob, um, oh, the duck of death as uh, Gene Hackman calls him. <laughs> but it's like that, that he just had a great publicist who was writing this stuff up and people have riffed on that kind of character trait in other Westerns as well. I think it's interesting you bring up the the ability of, of, of finding other people's voices that like you can't do that you're sort of uh, enamored <laughs> with. Actually, Shahir, one person that I think about like in that space is Jonathan Blade, friend yeah, of the show, yeah, yeah. fellow podcaster, the man who just has a melodiously calm voice. Yeah. And I was like, when you were saying this, I was like, who am I thinking of? Oh, Jonathan Blade. So jo- Jonathan, if you could just I know he's email us well. in onlymoviepodcast at gmail.com and read us two or three lines from the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford in the na- part of the narration. I want to see if I'm right. Well, cause I think I th- if it was you, the, Jonathan, you're, I'd you're be then going to put it in a side by side. You're going to yeah, put yeah, it yeah, yeah, side yeah. by side. Remix the film. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I think, I think the other thing is as well is that the writing of that narration is really interesting, which is that my instinct first time I, I saw it is that the writing of that narration is really uh, see say you know like they, you're seeing something and then they're basically mm. reiterating with boys I noticed that when like um, Ford is wandering around the house by himself and he's like trying on or he's he's sitting in Jesse James's um, uh, sitting on the bed or looking at his finger pretending that it's a that, that it's the same thing and the, and the voiceover is basically just telling you everything we're seeing and I was kind of like I wonder if the scene plays without the voiceover at all and you could just kind of move with it but at the same time there is there's this sort of uh, lyricism to the simplicity of Hugh Ross's voice and the the matter of factness with which he's telling these stories. And I think what happens is that it builds up to the very end of the film, where uh, Ford's death becomes just a matter of fact. And and what it did for me is it crystallized this idea of fatalism within the film that I I was aware of the first time I'd watched it, but I I think this viewing for me really crystallized that. And there's this, the, the scene before um, Jesse James gets killed, he comes home and he, uh, he swings his daughter around and she loses a shoe. And then the moment before he realizes that he's going to be killed, he sees that shoe 
out on the yard and he hears her voice. And, you know, the, the way in which he kind of unbuckles his gun, you know, after having just walked through the town with his gun and he says, I guess I'll unbuckle my gun because I don't want anyone to see it, which is, of, of course, absurd given what we know about him. It's this like there's this sort of casual acceptance of the fact that he he's aware that he's about to be killed. And the the sadness that I spoke of earlier kind of becomes amplified there because he, he the way he kind of walks up to the to the you know to the picture of the horse and starts dusting it is as though he's placing himself in order to be killed he's kind of like presenting himself with the most opportune moment yes. and i think the 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 thing about the casualness of the voiceover is that then for me the film does this sort of mirrored stories of robert ford's life after jesse james and and in a way while it's not one for one he achieves this notoriety and this fame just like jesse james that's a lyric of a song isn't it that's a bon jovi song or something where, uh, <laughs> I remember, just like jesse james anyway uh, <laughs> um he, and copyright <laughs> he achieves this notoriety and and the way in which he realized you know his day before he gets killed kind of has that almost similar level of fatalistic acceptance about it and and i think that's where I think the where Dominic's approach to this material is so good is that he he places it in the sort of almost in a mystical context, which is that these characters are fated to revolve around each other, and and they're fated to cut like I think the the way it, it, obviously this is not how it happened, but it's the way in which Dominic kind of sees the material as this person knows and understands just through some innate sort of reptilian sense that this is the person that's going to kill me. And no matter what I do, this is an unstoppable thing. I am going to be killed by this person. And today is the day. So, so I had actually a question on that. Okay. So that's your read of yeah. it. I, I go back and forth. I, at first I thought that a hundred percent like, well, this is it. This is what has to happen. Guess I got to take my gun off now. Go stand, dust the but, horse but picture. Just, sorry, sorry to interrupt, but it's not logical. It's mystical. Like it's, it's, it's not, it's not a logical thing in the film for him to do that. It's <laughs> right. 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 It's so the way so, the film but, reads the interprets the events. Sure. A hundred percent. There's that way. Or, and I don't know which one I subscribe to. Does Jesse James by his own press so fucking hard <laughs> that he's this is another form of taunting Robert Ford that finally <laughs> comes up on him. Like, does he think he has so much sway? I just had to walk through town. Da, 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 da. This kid's, you know, it's super creepy, definitely wants to kill me. Oh, you know what? He'll never kill me. <laughs> you know, I'm just going to take off my gun. That painting looks dusty. And so, like, I'm going to go back and watch it again a couple times. And I'm sure it's it's nebulous and whatever, I, and we can I, kind of I read think, our own thing. I think that's a total fair reading of that. I, I think it's – it's I, I love both of those reads. For me, I've always thought of in that moment, there's a clarity of – I am going to be killed by a sycophant. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm so famous that of course one of my groupies is going to kill me. <laughs> right. Like that's where I'm at of like that, that realization that I am only now, I am only now protected at the behest of my minions. These little, like these little sycophants that surround me. And the now, plastics, these, if and now these plastics want to kill me. You know, and now, so there's no more protection, right? There's no more sanctuary. There's no, there's no more thing that he can do. And so I've always, I, I you know, I, I, I don't, I don't disagree with those reads. In fact, I love both of them and I want to go back and watch 
with those lenses. But my my read for 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 quite some time has been more like I've 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 eliminated my my crew because of potential betrayal, and I've and I've exchanged them for these sycophants who would never be brave enough to ever take me down. But now he's feels yeah. that they're emboldened to, and if they're going to take him, then anyone can take him because yeah. he doesn't have oh, any yeah. friends. And, and, and also, so, it's it's a problem of his own making. You know, like he, yeah. he, at that moment, yeah. he's like, "I've done this to myself." Yeah, I've brought he realizes them into my that house. that moment, yeah. in that moment, I've brought these sycophants in, and and that that's what's even scarier. Is like I could used to be able to bark orders and tell them what to do, and my other crew were unpredictable. Like they wanted yeah. to do their own thing, but at least they had the honor. Yeah. And these guys now that they don't even have that, and that's really, I want to I want to go back really quickly because so 2007 this movie's made. I just want to go on a quick aside, and it was something I recently discovered doing a, a podcast with a, an Australian filmmaker called Gregor Jordan. Oh yeah, Gregor. In, yeah, yeah. in 2003, Gregor Jordan made the Ned Kelly yeah, movie yeah. with Heath Ledger and yeah. Orlando Bloom. So this is for your listeners. The original script was written. Not many people <laughs> realize this by a great screenwriter and filmmaker in his own right, John Michael McDonough, who went on to make Calvary, The Guard. He's Neil McDonough's brother, right? Neil McDonough's brother. Yeah. Now, John Michael McDonough originally wrote a Terrence Malick take on Ned Kelly. Hmm. This very, because we've talked about a Terrence Malick Western, he wrote this like lyrical, poetic, beautiful, you know, through through the forest. You see some glimpses of it in the movie, but like, um, never had a love story that you never had a love story anchoring the movie as the film eventually did had many more set pieces. And eventually the studio based on the amount of money that the film was costing and everything ended up sort of changing and altering the script and trimming things out and taking things out and excising things and putting little chunks in to do it. And so I just like, it's so funny that now our shorthand is, maybe one of the reasons we love this movie is because it's like a Terrence Malick Western. <laughs> and at the time, yeah. a, a, a sort of bastardized Australian, you know, frontier movie about like a famous bush ranger slash, you know, convict cowboy, whatever you want to call it in this country, um, had that potential to do like four years earlier. And they were just like, nah, we can't do it like this. Let's make 310 to Yuma. You know, yeah, that's, yeah. That's, that's basically what happened. Um, so it's really funny that you, as you guys were saying it, it was like triggering my memory of like, oh my God, Shit, that was yeah. a really funny thing. An alternate uh, future potentially for Ned Kelly. Well, the funny thing is, is that Andrew Dominic showed the film, showed the cut, uh, the three and a half hour cut to Terrence Malick. And Terrence Malick's main note was, Andrew, it's too long. You can't show this to anybody. <laughs> I was like, of all people, of all the people to make a comment like that. Uh, well, if you bored Terrence Malick with well, your movie, that's quite a thing. <laughs> God, I think he needs a, I think he needs a championship belt for what making a movie that Terrence Malick gave a note that said it's too yeah. long. <laughs> yeah. There's no, who, who else, what other directors could get that? I mean, yeah, you see, you get that from Terrence Malick or Werner Herzog, and you've you've pretty much made it as a filmmaker. <laughs> I'm, yeah. uh, I, I guess we should start thinking about the the my last question about this film, which is that, again, I have you know I've talked about it many times on this podcast. I absolutely adore this film. If you if you corner me in a room and start telling you know asking me about my favorite movies, this will inevitably make the list at some point. Um, and it's a film that I will kind of encourage people to watch and seek out. What do you think um, for people in 2020 who may who may have missed that? What is the what is the compelling pitch you could give for for someone who hasn't seen this film to watch this movie? I think it's a great, absolutely phenomenal take on. 
a famed figure. You know, I, th- I think I think Matt put it best like earlier, which is like I think we're all sick of the great man movie, like just mm-hmm. in general. I think that that was a great summation of that point. But I think it's, I think it's one of the most, um, it's one of the most canny stories about a historical figure of their time to sort of cut through the fluff of 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 all of that promotion and self promotion and like you know print the legend. Like I think it's like immediately cutting to that. And I also think it is an extremely savvy telling of what happens when you're a fan. It's like the <laughs> mm-hmm. worst, the worst possible fan outcome. Mm-hmm. You know, like yeah, if I, I was, if, I was as a person who did Mr. Ripley vibes in a weird sort of way along yeah, too. Yeah. As a person who, you know, loves hate like I do, my <laughs> worst fear would have been to, in that pinnacle moment when <laughs> yeah. talking to Michael Mann to, conclude the show that i had i turned it into a robert ford interaction rather than you know printing the legend of the movie like yeah. letting the movie you know riding off on the horse of like it's done and so i think that it's it's such a scathing look at fandom and 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 vicarious living and commentary of that because i think in this increasingly digital world people do that and it's completely self-destructive and so I, if I was those two things, it's like, it is, it's the antithesis of print the legend. And it is one of the best commentaries on fandom <laughs> that has ever been produced. I, I, just before you jump in, Matt, I was going to say in that interview with Michael Mann, the one thing that I just noticed was that, uh, and I think it's great interviewing, but Michael Mann felt like he was going to talk to you for another hour if you didn't cut him <laughs> off. Like he was like willing to just keep talking about the movie. And, uh, and, and I, I think you were there for it, but I was like, man, we've got to like, anchor him in some way because he's so he's so willing to like engage with the with the fandom of this film oh, i mean look there's no one in the whole world that could talk about a movie they made 23 years ago with that uh, that blistering clarity than him <laughs> in my mind like there's just no one who exists on the, on the planet earth yeah but i knew what i wanted to say and i was in a I don't know. The way I would say it to everyone is like, I was in a euphoric state just to talk to him. Yeah. Like, you know, yeah. like it's a crazy thing. Like it's, I had several out of body experiences going, imagine the Blake like 10 years ago, Getting to talk like to going, Michael Mann. you're talking to Michael Mann about heat on a show that you've spent two years producing. Like it's crazy. And that so you was, started on a drunken whim. <laughs> and I started only for me to, to make for myself and my friends to listen to. And it became this thing. And that thought um, that thought process of like, as he was saying things and talking to me, I was like, oh my God, imagine hearing this from Michael Mann. And I'm like, no, you are. Oh shit. Okay. Just, so yeah, it's one of those weird things. You just don't want to ruin the moment, but also, you know, when the moment's perfect, like it just, yeah. we got everything that we needed. It was perfect. It's like, we don't need any more here. We're good. This is as good as it's going to get. And then he indulged me even to say the line. I told you I'm never going back. And he said, yeah, and that was it. Beautiful. <laughs> That's good. I mean, and you, and you, I mean, 100% before I sort of go into my thing with the with the with the meticulousness you handled that film on your show I mean you earned that flow state hard right like that yeah. like you trained for that someone asked me if I was nervous for the interview and in some like in the first moment I actually was nervous and that was what and I'll tell you you guys this his people I called them and they left me on hold with no hold music for 15 minutes before he got on the phone. Yeah. And so can you imagine having all the recording equipment laugh. on yeah, record wow. going like, oh God, please be the moment. Like this is, <laughs> could be the moment. So then I was like in a heightened state and then I calmed down into the interview and a few people were like, were you nervous? And I go, listen, 
there is no one who has seen this movie more than me. There is no one in the world who has talked more about this movie than me, except the person that I'm talking to. Like, this is like Pacino going to De Niro on the diner. This is my Neil McCauley. I've been chasing him. He does this sharp. He does this sharp. I'm ready. Like, there's no one more ready in the world to talk to him about this movie than me. So, like, people are like, were you nervous? I was like, yeah. Like, at the beginning, I was nervous because I didn't know if he was going to even answer the phone. But once he's on the phone, it's like, oh, I'm ready. You know, I'm ready to talk to you about this movie. (laughs) Yeah. No, that's great. So, Matt, how Uh, could you take that experience and make it the worst possible experience? (laughs) How how could I? Oh, I mean, Uh, to to take the lessons from the assassination of Jesse James. How could we make this uh, this Blake Michael Mann experience reflected in the movie? Start arguing with him about <laughs> uh, about performances and choices. <laughs> That's yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I would have really preferred. Yeah. I mean, did you think about doing this? Yeah, no. Um, I heard. Course, yeah. I heard the James. <laughs> I heard the James Belushi wanted to be a part of this movie, and you yeah, said, no, "Why not? Why not?" Yeah, <laughs> give him a shot. Um, assassination of Jesse James. Uh, uh, I, I, <laughs> I love. Uh, I mean, I stick by sort of my initial thing again that, that Blake reiterated. Uh, tear down the great man because we're all That's sick right. of it. It's a hundred percent. I also Blake right back at you. I I dig and completely can relate to this as a as a a scathing takedown of fandom. Um, so I live most of my life on the internet as a lot of us do, though uh, I. Uh, it's it's strange. Uh, through my other job, there are uh, many phenomenal people that listen to the show. I'm sure we've all sort of dealt with this in a sort of uh, situation. And I feel like, uh, as self-aware human beings, I am also comfortable enough saying I have been that person once or twice that this is Absolutely. a movie taking down. So yes. I don't want this to come as like I'm 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 being like, oh, I've never done this. I've fucking done this. But like, <laughs> there's there's. There's a weird thing with internet culture today, as you brought up, like, where we we feel as though sometimes we know a person through the body of their work. I actually feel like I was more guilty of this when I was an editor, and I'd see uh, uh, an actor at a rap party, and once, like, I've only made this mistake once, but I remember it, like, clear as day, walking up to them, because I'd seen literally days worth of time with them in a in a dark room by myself with pictures of their face talking at or around me and i started talking to them like we knew each other and they didn't fucking know me and like you could t- and like after a minute or two i was like oh shit like i had that moment of turn which obviously uh uh robert ford does not have in this film so i i can relate to the feeling this movie takes that and bottles that uncomfortableness and just shoves your face in it for like two hours. And it's so interesting in the digital age as well because everyone we are a fan of now, we kind of have an avenue to. And and to we luckily, a lot of us and a lot of fans of things have restraint. Uh, Robert Ford is someone who did not have restraint like no. put himself in every position to do it and of course it took it to its darkest end and just sort of seeing it through that lens i kind of got a weird like um what's the word i'm looking for? like not the trolley side of like the darker sides of things like gamergate or like any of that shit but like 
the the side that like of that of that dark part of fandom that just wants acceptance and to show it in this way with a classic american outlaw also being taken down sort of at the same time but still while showing it through the eyes of a sycophant like it's this weird like it's it's a gravitational pull that like just goes to this weird sort of like razor sharp single point and it it's telling on a lot of different ways. So I would say if 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 someone like myself uh, thinks they'd seen it and did not see it, uh, <laughs> has seen it only in GIF form for five or six years on the internet. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, I would say. I mean, it, it was a and and to let it when you watch it to let it be okay if you're not having the sort of like come to whatever deity moment that you believe in that we're sort of describing it took me like four or five days i was like that's a pretty movie i can talk about the pictures in the soundtrack <laughs> and then it was slowly coming to me so i would say also let it sort of wash over you uh especially because some things like the narration etc that have kind of become tropey, not this film's fault. Like other films that I had seen previous to this that came out after it, I think pulled a lot of things. Uh, last thing I'll say, um, the soundtrack. I did want to say this. After hearing it, I realized that like some of my other favorite completely disparate media soundtracks are pulling from this fucking thing. <laughs> I don't know, Blake, I don't know if you, are you a gamer at all? Do you play video games? Uh, occasionally. I'm not, I'm not as, okay. not, I, I'm, I have, I'm a father of two. Mm-hmm. And so no I time. literally understood. Have, yeah, I, I fill that time with producing podcasts. Fair. <laughs> Otherwise, fair, fair, if, fair. I, if I played Madden, if I just played Madden all day, there's no podcast for anyone to listen. hundred percent. <laughs> Please don't do that. Um, I, I uh, there's a video game that's very dark but different in tone, but also kind of a beautiful sadness called Bloodborne. It's on PlayStation, and I've always loved the soundtrack. And the moment that like this movie swung in, I was like. This is the blood. This is the fucking blood. <laughs> it is not like it's not the same, right. but they're pulling the same. It's it's beauty and despair and 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 sadness and and just an overwhelming sense of um, futility in a weird way. And I was like, is this this is I guarantee? And I I searched so hard and I couldn't find a connection. But I'm gonna fucking gun it to the music director of that game. They're Japanese and I, I can't. It's hard to trace. But I'm gonna do the 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 you know. Uh, wire on chalkboard thing and really make the connection because I believe that and a lot of other things that I really connect with in this same genre of, you, you, of score. You only have to read the track. You only have to read the track titles. The track titles. Rather lovely thing. Moving <laughs> oh, on. Jesus. Falling. Counting the stars. Another rather lovely thing. What must be done. Like yeah, it, what like, must be done. Yeah. What must be Fuck. done. And song it, for Bob. Like oh my god, this whole this like I I I've listened to this like yeah. a billion times. It's like four, it's fourteen songs. It's forty three minutes. Honestly, when I used to do writer sprints, I'd do like twenty minutes like break yeah. and then like do the last twenty minutes to finish the whole soundtrack. And like it's it's you know it's so I've it's, used it's, it. Uh, I've used it in animatics for things I'm making uh, when you're trying to establish the tone. Uh, it's really good for rip reels and that sort of thing. And we right. uh, in our conversation on movie soundtracks. Uh, or movie scores with Stephen Gallagher uh, from uh, Peter Jackson, one of Peter Jackson's track layers. Uh, we we mentioned this this particular score in some detail uh, as being possibly one of the most beautiful scores ever written. Uh, Nick Cave and Warren Ellis. And uh, I, I'm not a huge. I'm aware of Nick Cave. Uh, was Nick Cave the person singing uh, the song in the end? It looked like him, but I wasn't certain if it was him. 
No, it's him. It is him. Okay, that's him. Yeah, yeah. It is. It is Cave in the movie. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm just. I'm not. I'm not as well versed in Nick Cave, and I was too lazy to look at the IMDb. Funnily enough, does a singing cameo in Ned Kelly as well. Old does Nick he? Cave. Um, and Jeez. he sings. And he sings all the songs uh, in his beautifully uh, written and equally the dark and right? brutal film, The Proposition. Yeah, yeah. I've been meaning to see that for some time. Oh, uh, Shahir, you guys, have you guys not seen The Proposition? I have not seen The Proposition. No, I have not. I, I, I do not. Look, oh my I, I'm fully aware right, of down. how great that movie is meant to oh be. Oh, my God. But it uh, is. Okay. The other Australian film that I have been meaning to see for forever and have not is The Snowtown Murders. Everyone yeah, here I, tells me you have to watch The Snowtown looks, Murders. S- um, I might say something controversial. I might get kicked out of Australia. Look, Snowtown's fine. Like, yeah. it's a good movie. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. dark. <laughs> It has an absolutely incredible performance, central performance by a guy named Dan Henschel, who's a comedic actor, but he gives a performance that is utterly chilling. Movie is good. It is not fun to ever watch ever again after watching it. It's disturbing. Uh, It's about, again, a psychopath who kills people, puts their bodies in barrels. It's not fun. But the proposition is a Western morality tale as told so wonderfully has incredible actors in it um it's got you know it's got guy, guy Pierce, Pierce, it's got john yeah. hurt it's got ray winston yeah. um it's it's got uh danny houston it's it's so good uh it's a basically about two brothers who are in a gang there's a originally a gang of three brothers the worth is worse is their older brother played by danny houston who's a complete <laughs> psycho and um a cop catches his two younger brothers who've defected from the gang and says he takes the youngest one he goes well i'm going to kill the young one Unless you go out and kill your brother. If you go out and kill him, Bob's your uncle. There's your proposition. And uh, it's... It's like a decent proposal for Westerns. Yes. For death. Yes, exactly. Um, please, someone redo the proposition poster as the indecent proposal process. Send it to me, one blank minute on Twitter. Um, but no, it's, it's truly one of my favourite... It's truly one of my favourite... Uh, Australian films, maybe in the top three. And uh, it's absolutely riveting. The score is insane. The script is phenomenal. Um, It's directed um, by a guy by the name of John Hillcoat. And John Hillcoat is a terrific Australian director. He has directed like Triple Nine, which isn't a great movie, but should have been like the greatest TV show of all time if he made it into an extensive thing. Um, And uh, uh, oh my God, what am I? I'm I'm forgetting his other... He did a a film which actually was well received here. It was a... uh, I've forgotten the name of it. Oh, it's got Tom Hardy in it and Charlotte Boof and uh, Jessica Chastain. Yeah, it's the, it's the, the gang of outlaws. Um, oh. oh, and he, he also did The Road. And he did The Road. Yes, yeah, yeah, he did yeah. The Road. Um, um, Lawless another, was the... Uh, Lawless. Yeah, there yeah. we go. I couldn't remember what it was called. But, but, uh, but yeah, Andrew so Dominic, Lawless... Uh, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Both guys, both guys are so great. But yeah, proposition. For, guys, that's... Any of your people listening, if you can get your hands on the proposition, you will not be disappointed. It is, it is unbelievable. And they shoot it in Queensland in Australia, which is one of our northern states. They shoot it in about... On set every day, it was about 46 degrees centigrade. So I'm going to tell you what 46 degrees. Um, yeah, what is centigrade. that? Super hot. It's 114. God. So like uh, 100. So like every day, it was like 114 degrees. All the actors have got flies crawling over their faces. Everyone is gritty, disgusting, dirty. It's brilliant. Like it's it's also so brutal. Like it shows you the landscape. It's um, as this incredibly brutal thing. And yeah, it's it's a great. It's it's really good. Sorry I, to riff on another. Uh, no, no, uh, no. I mean, Western. 
Yeah, the neo western, and I think John Hillcoat and Andrew Dominic have kind of been wandering around Hollywood, inter- you know, making movies, but not quite <laughs> getting the notoriety they need. I, I, but uh, Andrew Dominic has a film about Marilyn Monroe, which he's uh, which is coming out this Want. year. Um, yeah. And uh, I, 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 you know, what's interesting about Andrew Dominic, I think, is the pendulum swing between the assassination of Jesse James and killing them softly, both with Brad Pitt. Um, was an interesting pendulum because Killing Them Softly is a movie, again, I've watched it many times. It's not a movie I kind of get on the wavelength with, and particularly the first viewing, I found it was just so on the nose about what its politics were. Mm. Uh, you know, but, but the more I've watched it, the more I'm kind of like, you know, now that I live in 2020, I actually, you know, as unsubtle as this movie is, which is, which is the, the pendulum swing is that the assassination of Jesse James is possibly the most subtle telling of the story of the American myth. And, the you know, Killing Them Softly is the most unsubtle story. It's, yeah, of, it's the it's, loudest. It's the it's loudest. loudest. Yeah. Everything's broken, give me my money. Exactly, like, that's yeah. basically... Fuck you, pay me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this is America. This is, America's not a country, America's a business. <laughs> yes. um, uh, so the pendulum swing between those two, I think, is really interesting. But I think I, I'm, I'm hopeful Andrew Dominic will have his moment. Um, Blake, I would have loved to actually gone through my favorite Australian movies because there's so many of them. Um, I a, mean, a podcast for another time. Podcast for another time. I, I will say one of my favorite movies that I saw this year was an Australian movie, and it was a film that came out a couple of years ago. But it was Jennifer Kent's uh, The Nightingale, uh, which I think mm. I, I was just blown away by. I think it's I think it's magnificent. More, I loved it more than The Babadook. Um, so uh, definitely conversations to be had about Australian cinema. Blake, thank you so much for joining us for this conversation oh, about thank the assassination. Thanks, Blake. This is a James. This is a lot of fun. Uh, uh, well, this has been the only podcast about the film The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. Blake, when when you are not gracing us uh, with your, again, most pristinely bearded presence, <laughs> where can folks find you? Uh, the best place to find me is One Blake Minute on Twitter. You can go to the website, oneheatminute.com. You can see everything that we're doing on One Heat Minute Productions. Um, and yeah, so anywhere you find your podcast, you just type in One Heat Minute, you'll find our show and litany of shows now um, going backwards from all the President's Minutes, Josie and the Podcats, Increment Vice, Last 12 Minutes of the Mohicans, One Heat Minute. Um, there's a couple of little uh, in-betweeners that are in there. Miami Nice pops up now and then with my great co-host, Katie Walsh. Uh, but yeah, in... Around, I don't know, 10-ish days' time, there will be a Zodiac Chronicle episode for people to listen to. 24 episodes <laughs> coming on David Finch's 2007 masterpiece. Uh, Dang. And that, two for each sign of the Zodiac. That is uh, that is a film that I watch repeatedly. I'm, I have an unhealthy obsession with that movie. Um, well, so I'm very so, excited to hear that. So thank that it's great to hear. Um, we'll talk more about that off air. But there's yeah, th- this has been a show that... Uh, it's been a film and it's it's one of those that I've had an unhealthy relationship with and uh, been inspired to talk about. And uh, I literally can't wait. We're doing something completely different than we've done before. It is not a minute-by-minute minute deep dive. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a... It is a sprawling show through the themes and scenes of the movie, um, and uh, there'll be multiple guests per episode. I'm so excited about how the first few episodes are shaping up. Um, the guest list is large um, and uh, pretty I, I, scary for me. Given what the nature of that movie is and the way in which David Fincher approached the material, what I'm really hoping for it is that in episode 24, you unveil an interview with the Zodiac. 
<laughs> that's what I'm, that's what I'm, I, I want you to go thin blue line Errol Morris on this we're minute 24 can, you, you I got won't tell you. I won't tell you the friend that said this but I can tell you my friend when I, one of my friends I announced that I was doing all the president's men and one of my dear friends who I won't mention their name on this show goes good fucking luck getting Pakula um, so uh, as he had already passed away yeah and so uh, so that was uh, that's the kind of friendships that I um, cultivate uh, here and I enjoy but yeah look I, I'm you know the sky's the limit with the show I'm really excited about talking to folks about it and uh, you know hopefully we've got some surprises and some wonderful guests along the way I'm very look uh, very much looking forward to that um, Shahir when you are not cutting class and uh, and biking while listening to Blake's podcast, where can folks find you? You can find me probably in the in a ditch somewhere um, after being hit by a car by not paying attention because I'm so enthralled by Blake's podcast. This is so portentous, by the way, and I hope that I hope none of this happens. Um, yeah, what do you do? don't don't, uh, don't say this stuff? I don't I don't need this on my conscience. On you could have just said I'll be driving through the streets safely, but no, you went dark that's what i do i'm i'm a pool of infinite sadness and you can find me in that wallowing in that pool at my website at www.shahirdaud.com that's s-h-a-h-i-r-d-a-u-d.com matt when you are experiencing the infinite sadness of my pools uh where can people find you oh you can find me just diving deep over at my website m-a-t-t-h-e-w-k-r-o-l.com my life and works also skeletor the number four on uh where is that at that's on instagram and psn and of course emperor msk on twitter please check out the good works we are doing also on extra credits by the time this comes out I don't know what series we'll be on. I think we'll be wrapping up. We just did our End of the Samurai series, which actually ends our fifth episode of five. Uh, it, it talks about the t- actual time period during the film The Last Samurai. Uh, so it's it's uh, it's a real good deep dive into that sort of transitional period of Japan. And uh, we also just talked about the science Spo- of the gravity spoilers. gun. Spoilers. Oh, yes. Spo- Tom Cruise, maybe not the savior of Japan. Uh, you know, surprisingly, <laughs> uh, you deep dive in history and Tom Cruise was there. It's he was weird. There. He's a vampire, yeah. both ah. literally and figuratively. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, and, no, it's all right. And then we also did, on the complete other side of the spectrum, we did a, a deep dive into the science of how the gravity gun in Halo works with uh, Dr. Aaron McDonald, who is the astrophysicist in charge of being the person that everyone in the Star Trek franchise asks astrophysics questions for was it was it so, half-life or halo i think it was half-life half-life yeah. half-life right. the gravity gun in half-life which is a favorite uh weapon among nerds near and far um yeah so uh thank you everybody for listening email us in only movie podcast at gmail.com or tweet at us only movie pod uh with any uh questions you have or if you along with jonathan blade would like to take a stab no pun intended at doing a line of narration from the assassination of jesse james uh, if you think you can yes. do it better Post it Send on Twitter. It show it to us. Tag us all in it. <laughs> yeah. we will definitely, Please do. Uh, Please do. Yeah. Lots of those. And uh, all of the Shahid memes mentioned during the show. Please. 100%. Please make yeah. For the love of oh, God. Yes. For the yeah. love of God. Please. And the boyfriend <laughs> Deacon's meme, I think, is right for <laughs> uh, This has been fantastic. I love revisiting this film, and I'm even happy to revisit with both of you. Uh, hope we can do this again soon sometime. Thanks so much, guys. Later. Bye. Bye.